Hello everyone, I'm Anand and I'm the Group Director of Revenue Management and Distribution at Wolf Hotels Management Limited in Hong Kong. In this episode of Persuasive Presentations Decoded, I will speak to Ms. Patty Sanchez, Duarte's Chief Strategy Officer. Patty writes books, creates frameworks, and helps clients connect with audiences through persuasive presentations and story-based communications. With an experience of more than 25 years in communication, she is the co-author of the award-winning book, Illuminate, Ignite Change Through Speeches, Stories, Ceremonies, and Symbols, and the author of the just-released book, Presenting Virtually, Communicate and Connect with Online Audiences. Patty leads an expert team of communication consultants and creative writers who help clients move their audiences in one powerful moment or in a movement over time. She's based in San Francisco Bay Area. Patty, thank you very much for your time, and I'm very happy to have you with us. Congratulations for your recent book. I have read it, and I must say I love it. It's easy to read and very useful for any modern-day executive who has to host online meetings or webinars or presentations. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad that you found value in it, and I wrote it exactly for that purpose, for anyone who is uh, having to give presentations remotely online uh, uh, in one form or another. We're all having to do that more and more, and I feel your pain, so I wanted to help. Excellent. So let's get right into it. Patty, share your story with our listeners. What does Duarte do and what prompted you to write this book? Sure. Well, Duarte is a communication firm and we have two sides to our business. We have a consulting arm that works with the world's largest brands and uh, most beloved leaders to help them craft their communications for high stakes moments. We also have a training business that delivers uh, workshops, e-courses and other forms of online learning to help people build the skills so that they can present more confidently, communicate more confidently, uh, no matter where uh, they're presenting or communicating. Sure. So virtual presentations are becoming a norm these days, Patty, and um, they are increasing the reach of the presenter and are also cost effective. But, you know, I feel that it, people also miss being face to face and uh, somewhat, you know, the warmth of human interaction is missing. Um, I, I would like to hear from you. What does your research indicate in this area? How can we make up for this loss of warmth and human interaction? Yeah, that's such a great question. Well, it is a true loss. I've seen data from various surveys that indicate that on the whole, people are, when they're working remotely, feel like they are disconnected. They they are struggling to form relationships and rapport with their coworkers. And just on average, people are feeling more lonely. I think technology can isolate us. We're staring at our screens all the time. It makes it harder us to feel like we're part of the human family. But we can make up for that gap, that connection gap as presenters and communicators, if we're more mindful of the presence that we project when we're communicating virtually. So being more aware of our facial expressions, how we use our body, uh, the words that we say, and how that we say them with our voices so that uh, our audiences can feel our emotions, so that they can feel more 
uh, connected to us. And we can also get better at that by practicing how we use the technology, like looking directly into the camera lens instead of at the video of the person we're speaking to. Because when you look into the camera lens, it's like looking into the eyes of your audience. So there's some hacks that we can use to make people feel like we're uh, actually there with them. Excellent. You know, this this is such a great insight. And um, we, we spoke about uh, the gap in human interaction. But, you know, in day to day engagement with, with our teams, we frequently see a technology gap as well. And there is a very interesting section in your book that highlights this nuance. And I will quote you verbatim. Uh, we have all seen people stumble with the technology, struggling to unmute themselves after being introduced accidentally showing the wrong file when trying to bring up their slides, totally missing chats from the attendees because too many windows were open on the presenter's screen. But even moderately tech-savvy speakers grapple with challenges like getting their lighting right, minimizing background noise, and remembering to look into the camera at the camera instead of their slides. What is your advice, Patty, to reduce this technology gap? Yeah. Well, I just wrote a post about it on LinkedIn because today we hosted a webinar at Duarte on presenting virtually and right when we were getting started presenting, uh, StreamYard, the video streaming service that we were using, crashed. There was a global outage in Google Cloud that we didn't know was happening and we lost connection with our audience. So we had to first pivot to another platform. And that's my first piece of advice is be familiar with more than one virtual presenting platform. We're using Teams today. Uh, we use Zoom sometimes. Uh, we use Google Meetings. Uh, there are all different ways that you can connect with people online. Be familiar with more than one so that you can have a plan B, switch to another one and know what its features are so that you're not struggling to figure out how to share your slides. And you know, sure. go into the app before you join the meeting and make sure your preferences are set up, that the camera has uh, access and all those kinds of things. Practice is another way uh, to overcome that te those technology struggles uh, to do dry runs, especially if it's a very high stakes presentation, rehearse with somebody, join that virtual meeting before everyone else is there, do a, a practice virtual meeting the day before, a few hours before and practice using that technology so that you are more familiar with it, more comfortable with it when come uh, it comes time for the show to be live. And uh, and I do that. I, I will sometimes present by myself. I'll just open up a meeting. I'll run through my slides. I'll while I'm doing that, I'm also looking at what I look like to the audience and I make adjustments. If my camera angle is too low or too high, if my uh, slides are too hard to read or there's something else that's problematic, uh, I try to work those kinks out before I get into the live presentation. I love what you said, Patty. And if you recall, at the beginning of this session as well, there was a problem with the audio. But uh, I noticed you were very quick to pivot and adjust the technology at your end so that we could hear each other clearly. Yeah, it, that comes with practice. Uh, you, the more you're doing this, keeping virtual presentations on different platforms, the more confident you will be that you can uh, pivot and overcome the technical difficulty. You just can't let yourself get flustered. And Patty, there's a very interesting section in the book about the TriCast method. Please share some insights with our listeners on the three layers of information that you've written about. I personally found it very, very interesting. Well, I'm glad that you did. I think it is a pretty novel concept, a way to describe what 
it, what the audience sees when you're giving a virtual presentation, and that's what these three layers of information are. We call it TriCast because there are three layers of information that you can intentionally shape or curate to mm -hmm. create a pleasing and cohesive visual experience for your audience. So mm -hmm. essentially, Anything that is visible within the frame of the camera, you know, when you're when the when the camera lens is pointed at you, it sees a few things. It sees you. It, if your video is on, obviously, it sees your face, your facial expressions, your gestures, and so you want to be aware of how you look and how you're showing up. But the camera also sees. Uh, graphics, if you're sharing them, for instance, if you're sharing your slides in a separate window in Zoom or in Teams or some other application, that's another piece of visual information that you need to give some attention to. Think about what those slides look like, how they uh, support what you're saying, and how they even visually are consistent with how you look. And the third layer that I think some people forget to put uh, attention toward but is actually very visible to your audience is your background. It's essentially anything that is behind you when you're presenting virtually. And uh, that was always true when we were presenting in person, you're standing in a room, but mm -hmm. uh, but you're, you and the room weren't framed within this tiny window. And that tiny window draws attention to everything that's inside of it, almost like a picture frame on a wall or a picture frame around a portrait or a painting draws attention to what's inside of it. And the same is true for your background. That means uh, I'm presenting from home right now, and if if all of your listeners could see me, they would see a gallery wall behind me with lots of photos and artwork of things that I enjoy. And I have uh, taken effort to curate that wall. I took off some pictures that didn't match the rest of the pictures. I, from time to time, adjust the frames so that they're straight and not crooked. Uh, and and I try to essentially have images there that either uh, say something about me or they say something about uh, the subjects that are important to me. I know presenters who've done a beautiful job of curating their backdrop to showcase their brand. So for instance, an author of books that I know, she has a shelf behind her when she's presenting virtually. And on that shelf is a nicely arranged stack of her books and another uh, kind of framed piece of artwork that is a part of her brand. And what I love about that is it says to me right away, this this is an author that I'm speaking to, uh, but it also just creates a more cohesive message because more often than not, she's talking about concepts from that book that's behind her. So it's an example of how you can curate the scene so that it says something intentional to your audience. Excellent. That's great advice. And, uh, um, you know, we are slowly, slowly getting used to uh, this concept, especially the, the third one on how to dress up our background for, for maximum impact. Uh, sometimes we, we are just gifted with, with the excellent natural lighting um, or, or, or a cool background, but uh, often there are times we have to use a virtual background um, yeah. because uh, we just can't do anything about it. So within virtual backgrounds, um, what is your recommendation? Uh, sh should it be a, a, a formally designed virtual background or should it be just any of the stock photos that come with the application? Well, I would say it depends on your personal style and what is consistent with how people might see you. 
sometimes it might make sense to use a virtual background that is a branded image from your company. So for instance, my fellow uh, Duarte employees will often use a virtual background that is an, a photo of an environment in our office, a wall in our office where there's a big word Duarte and giant sculptural letters. And they use that to one, give uh, a sense of them being at the office when they're not actually there, which is really fun for the other employees who used to be there physically mm -hmm. to see, because it almost transports us back to that place, but also to uh, kind of brand themselves as a Duarte employee or Duartian, as we describe it. Uh, mm -hmm. So that is a nice intentional way to use a virtual background to communicate something about your company and it can be nice and, and consistent. Some people, designers like to use uh, gorgeously designed living room scenes that aren't theirs. They'll go on you know, some home design blog and they'll grab a photo and use it as their backdrop. My general opinion about that is they're okay, in, including even the ones that are built into your app, like Zoom or something, like the, the blurred background. They're okay for casual conversations, casual team meetings. Mm -hmm. But if you're making a very high stakes presentation, say you're presenting to the CEO of a company or you're asking uh, a venture capitalist to fund you, mm -hmm. uh, Credibility comes from you and what you're saying, but also the environment that you're in. And sometimes that can become a distraction if your virtual background doesn't look good. If you parts of you start to disappear because you haven't lighted it properly and you don't actually have a real green screen. And so it can start to distract your audience, which can also sort of erode your credibility as they start to wonder, is this person even putting any energy into preparing for me? This is a really important conversation. I really wish they would have given a little more thought to the background. So my general rule of thumb is if it's a very high stakes presentation and and everything you say and do matters. I'd rather you use a real environment, be in a real environment that is clean, uncluttered, and uh, well curated, whether that's at home or at the office, than a fake background that's going to look cheesy. Got it. Got it. That's that's great advice, Patty. Um, Patty, you mentioned in your answer audience distraction, um, but 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 very often we face the challenge of uh, a silent audience. Uh, there are occasions when we open the floor for questions, um, there is silence of the graveyard. <laughs> so how can we make it more safe for our audience to ask questions? How can we motivate them better and, as you say, hook them early on? Yeah, I love the way that you phrase that, making it safe for them, because I err on the side of being empathetic toward the audience. So when an audience is quiet, I think, how have I made it difficult for them to participate? And, and there are a few ways that maybe I could do that as a presenter. One is I haven't warmed them up. I, I haven't uh, given them small chances to contribute. So like you said, it's better to try and hook them or involve them early. Uh, I might ask people at the beginning of a webinar to say where they're where they're joining from and put that in the chat. And that's just a kind of a fun and easy way to get people contributing and to let them know you want to hear from them. And then I might use a poll, a, a, a multiple choice poll later. That's again, another easy way for them to make their voice heard. Just click a button and uh, and I see your feedback and that's not asking too much. And I do a few of those small interactions before I ask them to do something bigger, like come off my uh, mic or off mute, uh, turn their camera on and say something, which is uh, uh, likely to make some people feel very vulnerable. So you want to warm them up first. I also think that if you're uh, if you're getting a, a silent reaction from your audience, I mean, it could be 
that that you just haven't phrased the question in an interesting way. You want to ask open-ended questions, not yes, no's. It, it, it takes work to draw them out. So crafting interesting questions is also a really great way to draw them out. And then finally, uh, sometimes it helps to uh, get somebody as a, to be a co-conspirator with you. Uh, in the entertainment world, they call that a plant, you know, like on a game show or something. Uh, some audience members right away raising their hand, me, 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 me. Well, they were probably... <laughs> Uh, convinced by the producers before the show went on the air to do that. They were warned and they were ready to go. So you can do the same thing, right? Have a couple friends in the audience who get yeah. the rolling and put some comments in the chat. Yes, that's great advice. And that can take the pressure off on the rest of the audience. If they see their, if they see their friends participating, probably they would also participate out of social pressure, if, if not anything. Yeah, that's exactly right. Peer pressure can work in your favor. Correct, correct. So, Patty, our hotel-based revenue management leaders have to host a weekly revenue meeting, which involves a lot of data sharing and cross-tabs, which could seem a bit dry and, you know, boring for some audiences. We as a company want to elevate their executive presence and their impact on the property leaders. So how can we give more life to numbers and instead craft a story? You have mentioned some tips in your book about limiting to one idea per slide and also the three-act storytelling technique. Please share your thoughts with us on this subject. Yeah, sure. Well, you said that the content could be dry and boring and overwhelming, and so it's it's important to make sure you're not overloading your audience with uh I'm going to say vomiting too much data on them and not, you know, not not being empathetic again to how much information they're having to consume. And so, yes, uh, paring down your presentation to the key data points that you most need to project and share in your high level executive summary and then leave more of the uh, details, additional charts that aren't really uh, the main point or key information, put them into what we call a slide doc, which is a more detailed document built in slide software that you can essentially give people to read ahead of the meeting or after the meeting. That's one way to change the dynamic is take all your detailed data, put it into a report that you send to people ahead of time, and mm -hmm. then in that pre-meeting email, pose three topics from that report that you want to talk about or ask them to bring two questions and then facilitate a dialogue around the data instead of just standing and delivering data point after data point. So that's one way to make the conversation more interactive. Now, you also mentioned storytelling. My colleague and boss, Nancy Duarte, wrote an incredible book called Data Story. And read data Have you read it? And yes, what did you yes, it's excellent. I, I and I have read it and reread it. Yeah, there's a lot in there. The, it's a gift that keeps on giving. But essentially what she teaches in there is how to apply storytelling techniques to make data more, uh, not only more interesting, but more actionable. And one of her main recommendations is to uh, uh, structure your report, your data-based uh, communication into a three-act structure. And that three-act structure is borrowed from storytelling. In, in a three-act story, uh, in the, there's a beginning. There's always a beginning to the story in, in a cinematic 
story or a novel, that's where we meet the hero and, and we learn what they're trying to accomplish. And then the second act, the middle, is where we see the hero struggle, encounter obstacles. And uh, then the third act is when they uh, overcome. They overcome those obstacles and they're changed in some way. But in a data story, uh, the hero is in some ways the the people that you're presenting this data to, and you want to help them make decisions from the data. So in in that data story, what you're really doing is unpacking there's a there's a problem or an opportunity in the data. That's the first act, the data story. The data is telling us that there's a problem or an opportunity. Then in, in the middle of that recommendation around your data, you explain uh, exactly what the data is telling you about the kind of the root causes or uh, complications that are creating that problem or opportunity. And then in the third act, you propose what the action should be to resolve that complication or to seize the opportunity or to fix the problem. So that has inherent interest in it, uh, but it's also kind of curating the information into a more consumable structure so that your audience knows what to do with the data that you're sharing. I love that analogy and uh, um, I love the middle bit, you know, when you create tension and finally release that tension by, by proposing a resolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and sometimes uh, data analysts are uncomfortable doing that. I've, I've spoken with people who say, well, it's not my job to, to uh, recommend the action. It's just my job to report what the data says. But that puts the effort back on the decision maker, back on the people that you're presenting to, to make sense of that data. You need to help them make sense of it uh, so that they can take action on it. That's the point. We don't we don't measure data for the sake of data. We measure data so that we can learn what to do differently. Love what you said. Patty, I ask this question to all my guests. What provides you professional fulfillment? It's seeing people's eyes light up when they realize that they can be better communicators. Uh, there are a lot of things that are stressful about communicating, especially pre presenting, you know, standing up on stage or in a virtual room that, that just freaks people out. But when in our, our books or our training, they discover a tip, a technique that seems attainable, something specific that they can do that will make them feel more confident in their communication, uh, their eyes light up. I see them, their shoulders drop as they relax and start to feel more capable and that that really gets me going it get, it's it's what it's I, i'm here to serve and i love helping people get unstuck excellent that's a beautiful thought having people's eyes light up when they feel capable patty yeah the international borders open up which is the first country you want to visit in asia i hope you say hong kong <laughs> Ironically, I would love to go to Hong Kong, and it's been calling me for quite some time. A very short story is that when I was 15 years old, my father was living in Hong Kong, and he died suddenly. And uh, and I never got a chance to go visit him while he lived there in a beautiful apartment above Victoria Harbor. So it's unfinished business for me. Someday I would love to go and stand where he stood and look at the beautiful harbor uh, and see it through his eyes. That's such a that's such a touching thought. Our office is um, very close to Victoria Harbor, so I look forward to meeting you in person when you are able to travel to Hong Kong. I cannot thank you enough for this great conversation. I hope our listeners enjoyed as much as I did. Look forward to reading more books written by you, Patty, in the future. Wish you a very nice day.
Thank you so much. My pleasure. Be well. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the conversation, please follow the podcast and share the link with others. Happy learning.